welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us for what will be our last podcast of the summer. Brussels Sprouts is taking a few weeks off and we'll be back more energized than ever starting in early September. But before we hit the beach, one quick announcement and then we'll delve into today's topic which is Germany's national security strategy on China and its evolving approach to Beijing. But first, the announcement. The Transatlantic Security Program at CNES is hiring an associate fellow in our program. So if you're passionate about Europe and transatlantic security at this critical time, come and join our team. You can find the job announcement on our CNES website at cnes.org, and please spread the word. And now back to our scheduled programming. On July 13th, the German government adopted the country's first ever China strategy, coming on the heels of the presentation of Germany's first national security strategy a month earlier. The China strategy is another important milestone in Berlin's evolving foreign policy under the current coalition led by Olaf Scholz. Many have pointed in particular to the document's surprisingly tough criticism of Beijing's, quote, grave violations of human rights, noting the marked contrast with the more accommodating rhetoric of former Chancellor Angela Merkel's government. Nonetheless, questions remain about the extent to which Germany's actions will live up to this rhetoric. Scholz, for instance, has recently argued that de-risking vis-a-vis China should be left to companies shying away from imposing government restrictions. Looking forward, Berlin's implementation of the China strategy will have consequences not only for Germany, but for the broader cohesion of the European Union and the transatlantic partnership, as issues surrounding relations with China continue to grow in importance in both Europe and the United States. To discuss key takeaways from the strategy, as well as its potential implications, we're really pleased to have Bianca Ortel and Andrew Small with us on the podcast today. Thanks for the invitation. Delighted to join you. Uh, by For a b- uh, b- brief background, Janka is director of the Asia program and a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She focuses on transatlantic China policy, including emerging technologies, Chinese foreign policy, and security in East Asia. And Andrew is a senior transatlantic fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific program, And his research focuses on U.S.-China relations, Europe-China relations, Chinese policy in South Asia, and broader development in China's foreign and economic policy. And Andrew, did I see that you just put out a book? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Came out in in November um, uh, in both U.S. editions and European editions. Okay, so it's not just, but let's put in a plug, uh, remind our listeners the title of your book. So it has bizarrely two completely different titles. Um, the European edition is called The Rupture, China and the Global Race for the Future. And the US edition is called No Limits, um, The Inside Story of China's War with the West. Okay, so I'm about a year late, but there you have it. <laughs> but congrats it still on feels that. new. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so maybe before we delve into the um, China strategy, we can lay the groundwork and talk a little bit about the context in Europe. And there's so much that's been happening in the last many, many months. I think going back to um, Ursula von der Leyen's big de-risking speech. And then since then, it feels like a whirlwind of 
kind of disparate actions. We had the French president's trip to Beijing. We had German chancellors welcome with open arms of the Chinese premier and a much more narrow um, interpretation or specification of de-risking. Then the Dutch had their chips control and now we've had the Italians announcing that they're withdrawing from the Belt and Road Initiative. So there's really a lot happening. And maybe the question for both of you is, to kind of set the scene and describe where you think Europe is presently on, on China. So let me jump in first on this. Um, as you say, this has actually probably been the most intense period of internal political debate on China in well, really living memory, uh, just this period of the last few months. And I think you set it out very well in terms of the period that we've we've just run through. I think the von der Leyen speech was a real marker point. I think some see it as the most important speech on China given by a European politician in, in a very, very long time. Uh, and yet the signals that have come out since then have, have been mixed. And I think reflect the fact that the stakes and the debates on this are extremely intense. Uh, the, the issues in question, whether it's the extent to which to push ahead with um, certain forms of economic de-risking, how to handle China on Russia, all of these questions, um, I think, are quite central to European strategic and economic interests. And there are genuinely different views on, on what the balance of this should, should really look like on, on European policy, uh, even if people can agree with an, a lot of the analysis. Um, and I think, I mean, as one of the things that we'll come on to when we talk about the German strategy is very much, do we have a baseline at least of the phenomenon? that we're dealing with, how we talk about and think about China. And that I think we're certainly getting closer to as a result of both the strategy and, and some of the, 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 the new language that we have on this and, and some of the consensus around that. But I think we're still in a zone of quite fierce debates on the balance on all of these policy questions. And that's reflected in the more prescriptive bits of this strategy, which I, I, I think we're still in a, a zone on this in which I think we've got at least six months, a year, maybe longer, in which some of these battles will play out. But I think in, in underlying terms, there is an understanding that we are in a very, we're in a new reality on this, that uh, Europe's relationship with China is characterized more by competition and rivalry now, that the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's backing essentially for Russia um, has changed the game significantly. Um, and that a series of the shocks that we've seen in the last few years from the Russian invasion to COVID um, to a whole series of other elements of behavior that we've seen under Xi Jinping um, are, are really fundamentally rebalancing the way that Europe has to deal with, with China. And if that is, is shared and accepted, I, I think there's still um, I, I think still a wide spectrum of views on exactly what that approach should be, even if we're starting to agree on some kind of rough frameworks that this, this strategy and, and von der Leyen's speech basically laid out. Yeah, and I think one of the key points that I think one should stress additionally is the fact that there is not agreement on everything is a good thing. China now matters. And that's something that particularly in the US discourse should be um, a cause for rejoice and, and, uh, and happiness that Europeans have woken up to the topic um, and are fiercely debating it now. And to assume that there would be some sort of agreement between Denmark, Hungary and Spain immediately um, on a question that is of great relevance for the future of distribution of wealth and of power and domestic policy. Um, that is That would be a, a weird assumption to have. So I think the debate is a good thing in the end. And where would you put Germany? So there's obviously differing views and there is deb this debate. And I know there's as much debate within some countries as there are across countries. But if you were 
to try to place Germany on a spectrum within Europe. And you would have maybe the most cooperative and conciliatory countries on the one side and the more kind of hawkish and combative approaches to China on the other side of the spectrum. Where does Germany fall or, do, you know, or would you actually need to talk about different parts of the coalition to answer that? I've always joked about the moral heights of the middle ground and that Germany really likes those and likes to be at the center of things and it doesn't want to be seen at the lead and it doesn't want to be seen as pushing something forward. But obviously, as you pointed out, within the government, there are very different positions on this. Even within the government parties, there are different positions along that um, those lines. So it is really hard to say that. But the strategy document puts some markers down. And it does you know, create a framework now that positions Germany in a certain way. And that is a position that is at the center. One can say positively, you can just say, well, it makes sure that there's not enough, that there's no backsliding at the moment and that there is not a regression of the positions and that things are not kind of getting weaker and softer um, than they, they already are in some respects on the China front. But negatively, you could say Germany does not use its weight to actually move the consensus forward or provide support to Ursula von der Leyen, who's a bit more out there on the kind of progressive front on China policy. So I think there's both sides in this strategy. Um, it serves both purposes. And that was the plan from the beginning to have that, to have a bridging function as well within the European discourse. And it puts Europe front and center. It's the start of the strategy. It is a very big emphasis um, in the strategy on the kind of European coordination. And I think this will be the biggest uh, test in the next few months and years to see how much does Germany actually start leading on China policy in Europe, stop blocking certain issues and start kind of developing um, China policy really jointly or is this just lip service? And in the end, it will be what is in Berlin's interest um, that will be done in, in here in, in where we sit. Okay. Okay. So that's wonderful. So maybe because we keep tiptoeing around the strategy. So let's hit it head on for a second and then we can come back because I have lots of more context questions. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of folks do view the Germany strategy, the Germany-China strategy as an important milestone in Germany's evolving views and approach to Beijing, even if some of the language was a bit more watered down than that leaked draft that we saw in November. Do you agree with that? Or, I mean, I guess, tell what do Brussels Sprouts listeners need to know and understand about the strategy? So, um, so I think it's important to not frame this around, oh, there was a stronger leaked document and that was sharper and now it's all watered down. It's a very different document. That document that leaked was a very preliminary um, draft. It has a very different structure. It has different wording. I've looked into things that I thought were really striking. What were things in the leaked document that I really liked? And, and I, then I look whether they made it. Um, and all of that stuff made it, actually. So the, the sentences that were important were sentences that were spelling out the reality of what kind of China are we actually seeing? What kind of China is the German strategy describing? Um, then the question of how clear is it in terms of um, analyzing weaknesses in the German approach and in the European approach at the moment? How clear is it in terms of measures that need to be taken in the future? So I think what it does is is really what it does really well is it kind of defines the framework really well. It is not so strong, and Andrew and I have discussed this multiple times in the and therefore bit. You know, the, the bit where you say, okay, and now what does that concretely mean? And when we turn it into action, but that's obviously even harder 
in a three-party coalition government. And it also could be, a, in a way, sometimes not super helpful in a very volatile international environment. You do not want to make every step clear along the way. One of the criticisms of the early leaked draft was, hang on, this is like 65, 80 pages um, of clear instructions to the government. And what if the conditions change and then we're stuck with this? What are we going to do about this? So I think it, it strikes that balance actually quite well in terms of being ambiguous enough to be adaptable to other circumstances, but actually being relatively clear in the analysis bit. I mean, the interesting, if you compare it to, for instance, the 2019 EU strategic outlook, which I think is probably the, the last reference point that there was for a pan-European strategy, it is a much longer document. It's extremely detailed um, in a way that that was not. That, that was intended to kind of be written in a close hold way by a small group of people, push the consensus forward, and then come up with a pretty tight action agenda for Europe. This is not that. This has been written with a kind of extensive process of consultation within the German government, with outside stakeholders. It is a much longer strategy. Uh, it's it, it goes through, I mean, it's. I think the English version is 64 pages uh, long, so it still ended up um, being something that was, was pretty expansive. Uh, and it is, in a sense, therefore, a more inherently center of a consensus, a center ground, what, what can everyone live with? Um, but it does have this pretty punchy language in it that I think some people had expected would be stripped out and it would disappear into being something much more kind of mealy-mouthed. Um, it's not. It's pretty crisp uh, in, in the descriptive parts. There's some points where you can see writing by consensus and two people arguing with each other and the sort of, we are in headed into systemic rivalry. Um, and yet um, we should not think that we cannot cooperate extremely closely with China, quite the contrary. I mean, there's, there's bits of that in it, but not too much. Um, and, and a lot of it, I think is just sharp and I think surprised even a lot of the more critical uh, voices uh, here in Germany with with how sharp some of that was and provides I think and, and this is, I think has been sort of reassuring for uh, element for people a, a baseline for at least saying you know we've identified the problems even if we don't necessarily yet fully agree on on what to do about it. And on some of the disagreements, I think is really fun that you could think about sock puppets, right? It's like two sock puppets talking to each other. And it has a little bit of that. Maybe Andrew and I will do a sock puppet version of the German-China strategy at some point. We would love that, actually. <laughs> but we would have to put out the video part of it to go with it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, I, I think it's this is something as a topic that Washington needs to, to know more of, because I'm not sure it made the headlines around here the way it probably should have, except in the small expert community. So I'm glad we're doing this podcast and that you're here. And I hope your sock puppets do come to Washington and uh, put on a couple of performances so that more people can know where, where Germany uh, is particularly. But, le but let me ask you about France. You know, that's one thing that um, uh, even a week or two ago when uh, Macron was in um was in the Pacific uh, on one of their uh, islands there. He was talking about China as the third way, um, excuse me, he was talking about France as the third way that <clears throat> it doesn't have to be China or the United States. There's other ways as well. I mean, some I'm, I'm sure I'm I'm screwing up what he was saying, but, uh, but, but definitely his view and I guess that of France um, is, is pretty, is very interesting and it doesn't necessarily go down so well in Washington. So, as you were putting together, as Germany was putting together its strategy, how different is it? I'm giving you a softball here. How different is it from Paris 
What did Paris say when that uh, German document came out? What do you think Macron thought? How different are they or how similar are they? So I think one has to distinguish partly still uh, between the Macron position on some of these things and the French system um, on some of these things. And we saw that particularly acutely during the visit and the cleanup work that then took place afterwards. There were elements of the positions that, and, and of course, given the way the French system works, inherently what Macron says uh, carries the the completely different level of, of of weight and is policy. But nonetheless, I think there are still points where he's freelancing and there's points that reflect something that is a kind of more underlying French position on, on, on some of these questions. And you saw that, of course, particularly with uh, the Taiwan language that, that he used, which I think caused some of the greatest uh, consternation in, in Washington, essentially doing something that signaled that, you know, this this was not a war of our, uh, anything that took place, the dynamics that were underway were, were not um, a French concern, were not a European concern, were a sort of distant, faraway uh, matter. Um, and I think that was the work that was done most acutely on the French diplomatic side to clean that up. And it's one of the most important pieces, um, if you talk to some of the people who are involved in putting it together, that they wanted to make very clear in the German strategy, that there, there are very explicit references that um, military escalation vis-a-vis um, -vis Taiwan um, is a matter of German interest, is a matter of European interest, and implicit in that is therefore that certain measures would be taken, even if they're not again necessarily spelled out in in, in the document. Um, but I, I think there are the elements of this. Um, I mean, you you also see language in the in the German strategy that mirrors Macron talking about blocks and um, wanting to avoid block politics. And the more sort of generous interpretation of, of what he was saying in, in, in the Pacific um, is, is very much that he's, it's, it's this ongoing theme of not wanting to see a world of block confrontation um, and positioning Europe in, in a way that is, um, uh, when it comes to dealing with China, uh, differentiated from the United States in, in certain ways, even if there is kind of basic agreement on a lot of the, the, the fundamentals. And this, this certainly includes Taiwan. Again, I, I think there's, there is a view that says there is value in having a distinct uh, voice for Europe. Um, uh, you hear plenty of people in the German system as well that say if, if Germany is just seen as a sort of adjunct to the US position, um, this will be uh, the uh, this will be more counterproductive than being able to have some distinctiveness about um, how some of these policy issues are approached. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of, of crossover on the on the French and and, and German uh, sides. Um, I don't think that on on the on the Macron end that there will have been a particularly pronounced response to the German strategy. The the Macron uh, kind of uh, approach does also tend to be, yes, this is in line with what I've said. The von der Leyen speech, he basically said, this is in line with my views. There's a sort of integrationist approach that does a lot of this on the one hand, on the other hand, um, on, on some of these questions as well. So um, I, I think that um, the German strategy will look pretty consistent with, with where um, he's at and where the French positioning is at. I think the, the important thing on the French side as well, though, is on so many of these areas, on Indo-Pacific strategy, on 
de-risking um, on, on so many of these questions. France has tended to be further out ahead. France has obviously taken more robust positions when it comes to presence operations in the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait. France has been much further out ahead when it comes to thinking through the de-risking agenda vis-a-vis um, -vis China, um, on digital infrastructure, on reshoring, on, on all of these things. So in a sense, Germany has lagged a bit behind the French positioning on, on, on these questions when it comes to the kind of strategic economic approach that France and Macron want Europe to have. Same with industrial policy. Um, so I, I think the sense is still Germany is kind of catching up to that version of the French approach. Um, and then one can debate how this kind of, uh, you know, Germany, I, I think, has a more Atlanticist approach still than, than than the French one when it comes to to China. I, th I think France at the moment is more of an outlier on these things and, and is one of the reasons why there is so much speaking up on this at the moment. There is a concern on the French side that we are drifting into um, a, a pretty concerted Atlanticism when it comes to China policy. Um, and, and I think some of the sort of vociferousness with which this is, is um, it, the, the positions are being taken from, from Macron reflects the, the concerns about what he, they would see as that drift. But the German-China strategy, and I think that's also a very key point of it, is not a strategy about changing China. It's not a strategy about what China needs to do. It's very much focused on strengthening Europe, strengthening Germany, strengthening defense. It plays defense very, very hard in this one. And it plays the whole question of European sovereignty or strategic autonomy, however you want to call it, also very strongly. So I would very much agree with the, the analysis that they all think they agree with each other. Um, like they all say they agree with each other. Scholz says, I've coordinated this with the French. The French say, we've coordinated this with the EU. The EU says, well, the you know, German strategy says exactly what we're saying. Um, it's a bit of the sock puppet version because the sock puppets can say different things. Um, then you can, can decide which sock puppet that very moment you agreed with. Um, but I think it's in the broader um, framework there isn't a huge divergence in um, in France and in Germany about the underlying analysis of the problem, but there is a difference sometimes in the emphasis that is put on the measures that are to be taken. And I think that's um, that's fair enough. That's also okay because that allows for certain also diplomatic games to be played um, and certain certain gains that can be achieved. I mean, it was a gamble um, to try for Macron to put on a, a very friendly face in Beijing and to try to get something out of it. Debt renegotiations for Zambia, getting China's presence to its uh, financing summit for the new financial deal. You know, he wanted Chinese presence there and wanted to play nice. Um, he got Chinese presence at a high level, got debt renegotiations for Zambia. Um, was that worth it? Well, that remains to be seen. But I think it is this kind of notion of what Macron wants to pursue is, I want to be able to do these things and I want to be able to play this differently. Um, and the Germans are actually quite busy in just kind of coordinating this within themselves. The, the upside of this three-party coalition is that once this has been hammered out between those three parties in Germany, it actually is very much a European consensus already because you have sort of all of the different sides, a bar the very outlier ones already integrated in, in the German um, kind of coalition government. Um, and I think that helps for um, making this strategy, this German strategy, one that can carry for um, a European discourse. Um, and I think we will see that in the months to come. It's a bit early now to say anything about that, but whether this strategy will provide cover for um, certain countries that have been more careful in how they have positioned themselves. Spain is a good example here. Um, it will be interesting to see how other countries are referencing it 
um, in Europe or whether they are not. Um, I think they will. Um, and I think that will be um, a, if it works, then that will be a strength of this strategy that it actually allows for European consensus to build uh, on a certain base level. Do you think the Italians might reference it as they go about uh, their changes to the, um, the Belt and Road Initiative membership? I think we will see, right? I mean, it, it, I don't think there will be a direct reference, but uh, maybe can Andrew can add a bit more on the uh, Italian side of the BRI negotiations, which are a bit more complex than just getting out. Mm, I, I mean, Germany always provides a certain amount of cover one way or the other for a lot of countries on, on this. And I think this is the other reason why the strategy will be seen as a bit of a center of gravity. You'd, if you're at Given Germany's economic exposure to, to China and the care with which certain elements of language and the bilateral relationship have been approached, um, it can often function as a flaw for countries where they're nervous about, in, in some cases, um, kind of uh, being too far out ahead with their noses beyond Germany on, on some of these things. But it also means there's a sort of baseline uh, for them. Um, I, I think Maloney's logic on Belt and Road and where the Italian system uh, was at on this had already moved. I mean, I think it moved pretty much literally at the time of them agreeing to the BRA MOU on the first place. I think they knew they had made a mistake. Um, I think they were, um, they've, they've been in different ways trying to extricate themselves from it um, for, for the past few years. Um, I think lots of it has more to do with relations with the rest of Europe and with the United States than it really does to do with, with China. Um, and I think this, this goes back to the very first point. Now that China's become an A-tier issue, in Europe and in the transatlantic relationship in a way that it wasn't three or four years ago. It just means that these issues are being handled with very differently politically. Um, and I think Maloney's approach to, to this, and but but uh, even uh, other senior Italian politicians bar the Five Star um, movement um, had already understood that this made, it, th there was a certain set of games playing with China that you couldn't go ahead with anymore and continue to be a kind of good European and a good Atlanticist. Um, and I think for the country that really care about getting that right or see it as important for political positioning as Maloney obviously does. I think that just results in a different set of choices that are in the end somewhat about China, but but as much about kind of wider political questions than 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 just a, a bilateral China policy. So I think that will be more important than than how they look at the German strategy. Because Very to be clear, that is, you know, the the BRI MOU, you don't have to do anything. Right. You could just leave it there as it is. And it doesn't change anything about your policy necessarily that you have it or that you don't have it. What is political about it is to change the status quo, to go to China and say, no, nope, we will not renew this. Um, you know, it has an automatic renewal in there. and We will not do that. That's the political message here. It's not actually the policy that is that is implied or it's not actually the business contracts that are implied here. It is this kind of political signaling, this political statement that you do with um, the MOU and, and you want to then domestically use this for political purposes. And it has a lot less to do with China and much more to do with Italian politics. Right, right. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, really interesting. Um, what about the US? Um, how how was this the, the German strategy um, seen in Washington, do you think? Um, and I, th you know, I've taken note of the U.S. The Biden administration seems to be adopting the term de-risking more and more. So, are we truly moving together? Like, is Washington moving in the way that it's working with Europe, in particular, on China? Or how would you place this strategy in U.S.-Germany relations? To how welcome was it? 
what was lacking from Washington's perspective, or is it really Washington that is maybe hewing a bit more closely to the European position recently? I think it's it's going to be a very interesting conversation later because the Germans wanted a term that was different from decoupling. They had de-risking. Now that the Americans are using de-risking, do we need to move away from de-risking again because it's too American then? Um, that could be an interesting game to be played in the future, whether we find distinct terminology or not, and whether the fact that the Biden administration said, yeah, we're not decoupling either. We were just de-risking just like you. Um, that makes it potentially problematic for the for the Europeans to stick with that term. But um, in general, I would say the de-risking notion is the one that seems the sensible one, the prudent one, that seems the one that you can sell also to companies because that's what they always do. You know, they always de-risk their business. That's not something new for them. The big question is, what is the role of the state in the de-risking process? And that is not solved by the terminology as such. Um, and that is not even solved in the China strategy. And that's not solved within the German government. There are parts of the German government that say that needs to be, you know, de-risking needs to be largely industry-led, needs to be largely focused on the companies. They themselves can make the call the best. And that implies that um, the understanding of risk or the perception of risk is the same for the companies as it is for the German state. And I would argue that that is probably not the case, um, that a company has a different risk assessment than a state has a risk assessment. And therefore, the um, the kind of message that Annalena Baerbock wanted to convey when talking about the strategy was very much that this is not about just industry-led de-risking, but about the political framework that is set for companies to make choices that are, you know, that you can no longer externalize the risk and internalize the profit. But that is, if you read the strategy carefully, not necessarily so clear in the text. It's more the messaging around it, that the spin that was put on it, that there is a kind of tug of war over in how to interpret that. But on the US side, this is, I think, the exact same tug of war going on as well, right? You have the same conversation in the US. You have the same conversation in how far should investment be restricted, how much business and companies should still be able to do and allowed to do. This is not something that is uncontroversial in the US. I think there is a bit of a... Um, a simplified understanding here in Europe on the US position when it comes to China. It's like, oh yeah, that's the one issue that the Democrats and the Republicans agree on. And therefore it's kind of all the same, not really understanding there's a very nuanced conversation about you know the exact contours of the China debate in the US as well um, around a certain kind of logic that has emerged. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in one way, the consensus around de-risking. I mean, some some of it was, you know, obviously in the lead up to the G7, coming up with this kind of cleverly agreed language that everyone could could get behind, even if they didn't exactly all agree on, on what it meant. And even if you do then have people like Schultz running around talking about smart de-risking and, <laughs> um, and, and things like that immediately afterwards to start to um, distinguish um, uh, the, the German position. Um, but I think it does also reflect that there was a slightly false polarization um, in the way that this is characterized. I mean, you have both Europe and the United States maintaining very, very large scale economic relationships with China still, um, and 
going through and trying to navigate um, on sector by sector some extremely complex trade-offs um, on how far to rebalance that um, and, and how to go about doing it and what rules to put uh, in, in place, um, or whether that's in semiconductors or uh, EVs or, or whatever you, you choose to look at. And in a sense, I mean, of course, structurally very different relationships as China and strategic position, all, all of these things are there, but a lot of the same things that people are wrestling with being not so dissimilar when it comes to um, some core parts of how one disentangles elements of, of, of the economic relationship in light of a different assessment of, of, of risks. Um, I, I think the um the when if you then say what matters most on the US side uh, in terms of the European positioning, um, I, I think on those areas the strategy was largely you know aligned in the right direction when it comes to things like um uh, revised approaches to export controls um when it comes to uh, at least highlighting um the uh, outbound investment screening and things like that i mean basically is europe going to be the leaky end on the tech side or not is europe going to be roughly in line um in in most of these areas it was more in the direction of being roughly in line on that and is europe going to be massively out of line in terms of kind of free riding companies and and things like that the signaling there was a bit harder edged even if some of the measures that had been talked about in the first place um, uh, were not necessarily included in the final version of the strategy. So I think it would be seen as within the G7 consensus as well and relatively reassuring in terms of uh, signaling. Um, and, and I think on some of the other areas, there have been then some helpful moves. I think if you're looking at Taiwan, it's one of the most obvious other cases where you know, Europe is now more salient. I think after the Russia sanctions, of course, there is, um, you know, given how sweeping they were, the the interest in where Europe comes out on Taiwan sanctions and preparations for that and things like that, um, I, I think have started to weigh more significantly than they did, again, two or three years ago. Um, if you were looking at Crimea-style sanctions, Europe would have been less consequential. China clearly looks at Europe more seriously in terms of the scope of what these sanctions might mean as a result of having seen what was what was done with 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 Russia, um, and that's where some of the clear language on Taiwan in the strategy I think was important because you're not necessarily going to get Germany or, or or even collective positions agreed that say these are the sanctions we would put in place and all of these things being agreed preemptively, um, but simply making very explicit and and not just in the strategy but in some of these visits that Taiwan is a vital European interest that there is a huge European stake in this is also the most important signal to China at the moment that says, and therefore, in some of these scenarios, Europe will, of course, implicitly be involved in the same way. Or in some instances, as we've seen, going back to Macron, um, we saw the public remarks um, from his um, foreign policy uh, diplomatic advisor laying out the fact that, that Macron had said this very explicitly to, to Xi Jinping. I think this has been one of the areas in the last year or so um, in which various European leaders have seen it as important to lay out as directly as possible um, the, the Russia question and arms transfers to Russia being the other issue, where I think there's been a pretty clear consensus and a willingness on the part of leaders to lay out directly in these meetings and then in these strategy documents the fact that Europe has a stake in 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 this and therefore that China will have to take into account the possibility of significant European economic measures. And what is teed up, right? So one of the sentences that was in the leaked document that I was quite excited about that made it into the real document was the fact that or the notion that none of the economic engagement with China should contribute to human rights violations or enhancing China's military capabilities. Now, if you interpret that widely, that means a whole lot of stuff. If you interpret it narrowly, it is a bit different, but it allows for 
alignment of positions around these questions that are already kind of anchored in that strategy document. And I think that's helpful for transatlantic coordination. If I really want to get also at China's reactions and, you know, if any, what if any changes in China's approach to Europe that you all have been watching, but last question on the kind of Europe-US piece, where, what are the areas where there's the most daylight between the United States and Europe and or the United States and Germany? If you had to put your finger on points of friction or areas of still divergence between the two sides, what would you, where are we furthest apart, do you think? Or is it all good news? <laughs> you can go ahead. I mean, it's a very differentiated answer that I would give to that because I don't think you can single out specific areas. I think within each of the areas, there are points of contention within technology questions, within standardization questions. With, you know, we have each in each of these areas, the devil is very much in the detail. And obviously, because of the IRA and because of the way kind of U.S. industrial policy is going at the moment, there's a lot of um, concern on the European side as well and on the German side as well, that this comes at a cost to European industry, that it is cost, comes at a cost of European sovereignty, um, even much more so. And so I think I don't think you can do these kind of broad sweeping saying, oh, yeah, this is the area that is most difficult and this is the area that is already fixed. But what I can see at the moment is, is there is an honest attempt in making this work in finding complex, more complex solutions to really complex problems at the moment and pushing areas forward and kind of putting markers down where transatlantic and transatlantic plus coordination is possible, where it kind of then ties in the Japanese and ties in other partners as well. I mean, I I think there's less sharp disagreement on China questions now. Um, I, I think there was, I mean, this is why the language thing has been quite important too. I think if you talk to the people who, uh, were closely involved in the transatlantic exchanges with the Trump administration and then through to the Biden administration, it has made it easier that there is this willingness to play with language in ways that mean that one can end up saying roughly the same thing. And, and it, it, going through all the statements, whether it's uh, whether the NATO, NATO strategic concept, whether it's G7 statements and things, it has been possible to find pretty common language on, on this that I think is roughly reflective of, of, of the reality that the issues are not seen in, in, in too dissimilar a way. I think the difficult thing has certainly been, I mean, you, you did a session on, again, on TTC not very long ago. That's the difficult zone. The difficult zone is how much can China change the transatlantic relationship um, in other areas? How far is it possible to overcome longstanding disputes on other areas that will be central to whether you can collectively compete with China effectively. Um, and that's on the, the, and that of course involves going into a whole series of areas on domestic privacy legislation and competition policy, and the whole series of other areas and the question, and, and that's where I think the sharpest disagreements have still tended to be. It's how far does China really act as a forcing mechanism um, to make progress in these areas? limit that has been progress but there have been some real limitations to that and I think if I'm sitting from the Chinese side which was the other part of your question and you're looking out at kind of okay there's the kind of there's, there's the measures that are the control measures. There's the measures that are the uh, restrictions on um, semiconductors and 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 um, uh, uh, semiconductor equipment and things like that. There's, there's plenty of movement in and alignment on those areas. You can see from China's perspective, this roughly Western or US allied coalition that also doesn't look a million miles away from the Ukraine coalition in terms of the list of countries that you see as the group that will be roughly landing in a particular place, depending on what you uh, do in the future as well. Um, 
but then how far do you see the kind of system pulling together in different ways? How far do you see the kind of positive sum alignment on new areas? Over, I mean, that that still looks much more uh, difficult. And, 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 I, and I think that's still the piece where you'd say, um, you know, how far are they hanging separately and how far are they hanging together? How far are you heading into a phase in which the responses to this when it comes to industrial policy and subsidies and, um, and, and some of the kind of spillover consequences um, of this are still going to be difficult to navigate and turn into their own political headaches. I think that's the area of which I will say, well, actually, on this front, there's, you know, they, they have not yet got to a place on, 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 on things where they are really pulling together as a collective yet. And the collective offer to the rest of the world in competing with China in third areas still looks relatively weak um, uh, or weaker than it should do. And so I'd, I'd say those are the areas rather than some of the kind of core China issues where I think there's just and, and I mean, this is true, I think, in Europe as well. As, and, and this is why you can have a punchy and strong, uh, strongly worded document, because the analysis is roughly shared. I think everyone knows what they're dealing with at the, at the moment. And, and those are the bits where I think you can kind of frame a, a lot of things on a pretty consensual basis. Yeah, that's so helpful. Jim. Um, for my final question, um, this is uh, this goes back to what you all had said earlier on. Uh, and um, and it also applies to the uh, national security strategy that Germany has put out as well. Um, I think that I think it was both uh, both in both documents. There wasn't a section, as you all mentioned, there wasn't a section that said, therefore, this will be our policy. This this is how we're going to go forward. But I'm wondering if that's just not the nature of these documents. I mean, yes, you don't put those kinds of prescriptions uh, at the end. Uh, Annex A uh roadmap to you know that this is setting out the policy and then this is the framework uh, within which you handle issues as, as they come at you um or do you think that frankly there needed to be some of that because it's great words great rhetoric a <clears throat> great way ahead but it falls off in terms of a document that has shows some teeth if you will so how did you all come out about that is it something that you can just wave away and say well we really didn't need something prescriptive and something like this or did you feel there needed to be something at the very end that showed that you all meant business so i would say in comparison to the national security strategy that was really weak on the and therefore um because it's a lot harder and more abstract and an even bigger topic in a way um the china strategy does have a lot of concrete things you know strengthen dialogue here strengthen coordination with these people um ensure that we have legislation on critical infrastructure i mean there are concrete points in there but it has the condition that it has to be budget neutral and I think the budget neutral thing is making it very um, very hard to say, you know, and therefore we will spend 10 million on this, 20 million on that, 100 million here, 50 million there. It would have obviously had a much bigger punch if you could say, and therefore we will take a lot of money into our hands and make this stuff happen. I do think that a lot of the things that need to be done can be done when it comes to, for example, strengthening China competency within the government, et cetera, within the existing mechanisms, within the existing financial frameworks, right? You can have, if you have to hire 20 new lawyers in the interior ministry, you can just hire 15 with China competency, and then you have done, you have achieved your goal without actually in having to increase your budget. But it doesn't have that signaling effect in the strategy at the moment that you that you don't have numbers in it that are kind of very concrete and where it says here this matters a lot to us and therefore we put that much money on the table i think that was what was politically possible at this point in time 
Um, and it has a couple of anchor phrases in there that say things like this is of specific interest to the German government that will make it easier in upcoming budget negotiations to say, because this is of advanced interest to the German nation and state, therefore we will do certain things. So I would regard this strategy much more so than the national security strategy as really the beginning of a process, um, of the beginning of a kind of evolution of a continued re-evaluation of where Germany stands on China and what needs to be done about it. And it's kind of step one. Um, and only in step two will be seen whether the lessons of step one will have been internalized in the system um, or whether they are kind of forgotten along the way. Very Andrew, you can pick up on it, but already isn't there a debate over Huawei and 5G? So it's like you have the strategy and yes. then when you start to come to specifics. So what does that tell you about how optimistic we should be on the implementation side of things? So they've set out this, this strategy. It says all, a lot of the right things, but are you hopeful? Are you optimistic that they'll actually, it that it will translate into concrete steps in, in 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 light of this Huawei debate. Maybe you can just tell us just a teeny bit about what that's about and and then yeah, what so I think it is very interesting that um sort of the, the strategy brushes over that a little bit. It actually mentions telecommunications and 5G and says, yeah, we actually solved that one. Um that's all done in kind of the legal framework that we have. And it's true. Kind of there is a legal framework for that that has been created. It just hasn't been implemented so far um into to it to that degree. I mean you can with the existing legal framework exclude Huawei from the existing German 5G infrastructure if you choose to. Um, and therefore, you know, you have the legal basis, which is true, that's said in the strategy, but you also have to implement it. So it's a bit of a cop out um, in the strategy document. And the discussions are live. Um, but I think we are now in a zone because the overall consensus has shifted so much, because the public debate has shifted. Um, it is no longer viable um, to have a, and therefore business as usual conversation. Um, we will see a, a hard kind of negotiation process. Will the companies want compensation? And certainly they will want some. Will they get any? Um, will the state say this needs to be phased out in the next three to five years or you will have until the next generation of the network? You know, there's still this debate um, and that will pick up in the September. We will have, because the strategy was presented basically when the parliament was already in recess, um, we will have a parliamentary debate on this um, in September when the when the parliament goes back into session. Um, and we will see a second wave, I would say. That strategy will have a second life in the fall um, and an and intense conversation about that. Um, I am kind of carefully and cautiously optimistic um, about the ability to actually put this into concrete action on the defensive front. I am more skeptical when it comes to actually creating the buzz that you would need for the offensive side, for the creating the international community. The last chapter of the strategy is about global cooperation. It is about creating kind of the global pull factor that Germany and Europe can create when they actually work together and when they want to achieve things together with the US, with India, with Japan, um, and create an actual alternative. Um, I think that that's, uh, that is very ambitious, but that's where I'm more um, skeptical whether we will see any kind of concrete results in the near term. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just add, and it actually goes back as well to the previous question about uh, transatlantic differences. There's been a real speed issue on all the China-related questions in Europe. Things, there's been, we agree on this, and then everything happens relatively slowly. And some of that has been a genuine reflection of the fact that uh, the processes take longer, and you know all of the things we know about 
European policymaking processes and and but but some of it is also just a reflection of the fact that there has been less urgency in Europe to actually address these things. Things get kicked down the road a bit further on some of these issues. We agree, but then the implementation is is then weaker. Um, and what, of course, this uh, allows is for the companies in particular that have particularly strong interests in specific area X to then target their energies on this and kind of lobby the hell out of it. Um, and, and I think to a certain extent, if you look at some of the measures that might have been added in the strategy, uh, you know, if you look at, say, transparency requirements for companies and things like this, you can then pick a series of measures that might have been in a in a, in a strategy that had a lot of teeth or very sharp teeth, um, and then say, well, you know, if if you're a company that doesn't want ABC on specific measures on about investment screening or specific measures on transparency or specific measures on, you can go down that list and say there will be resistance, there will be battles over these things, and um, there is a, a pretty fierce rearguard action from bits of industry to doing any of these things. Um, and there is an understanding among parts of that industry, including as well under some pressure from the Chinese side, which is ask, uh, pushing European firms and pushing a lot of firms to lobby harder and take more political positions on these things. I mean, this, this is going to be a period that is uh, that will involve real battles and real political contests over the substance of, of, of a lot of this. Um, and I think where the strategy came out partly reflects some of the pre-skirmishing on, on some of that. Um, but I think the hope is that some of this will speed up. And that's going back to the very first question about the last few months. This is the, the intensity of the debates and the political salience of the debates and the energy that's going into them at the top political levels has just moved very, very significantly in the last few months. So there is at least the capacity to speed up on some of these things. This has been the transatlantic gap as well in terms of Europe has in some of these areas reached a similar position, but then a year later, I mean, this is part of the fight about outbound investment screening um, at the moment, that there are certain voices on the European side who say, this is coming from the Americans, this is coming from the Americans. And actually, if you're going through a gap closing exercise, it's one of the areas that you would just come to. You'd say this is a, you know, there's a loophole here. This is one of the areas you'd, you'd close down. But in some of these things, it has been the case that the US has moved faster and I think there's a sense from certainly, uh, hopefully this strategy is part of it, hopefully what goes on on the commission end is part of it, that is Europe needs to keep pace. Europe needs to get out ahead of this. Europe needs to be in a position where it's carving out its own positions, most of which will pretty much mirror where the US is, is at with, with, with some nuances of difference. But it should be that, um, that Europe is in a position to set more clearly some of the terms of this debate. And I think on the US side, um, that will be helpful. I mean, the, there is an internal debate on these things in the US. In some cases, you know, deploying the commission's capacity to think through some of these areas of economic modeling on risk and things like that will actually be quite helpful for coming to something that is a more effective and, and, and better thought through consensus um, in a G7 context, in a wider allied context than having it essentially having to be driven on the US side initially, or to a certain extent on the Japanese side on some of these areas. I think having Europe in a more forward-leaning position on some of these areas will, will, will be useful. And, and hopefully if we if we can speed up on, on some of that, that would at least um, get towards on, on some of these areas, um, something that looks like a more sort of common system position on these and, and a view on the European side that says that you can actually shape that. I mean, de-risking was one kind of tiny hint of shaping a system position rather than just the European um, position, shaping a wider position. And, and, and I think the hope would be on the implementation of this and some of the energy that goes into things in the next um, few months that, that this will be part of a, a sort of acceleration on the European side. But that, that's the thing I'll certainly be, be watching for as well as the, the specific measures. And what to be watching for, I think, in the 
um, in the fall is also what does the far right do with this? Um, because that is with like AFD numbers above 20% in Germany, obviously their China position now matters also a bit more um, than it did before. And it's a pretty pro-Chinese position that they've held so far. Um, so we will see how the attack lines there will look like uh, in the fall debate. So I think this is a good moment to kind of take a deep breath um, in the summer break and then look for what's happening uh, after the recess in the parliamentary discussions and how China policy will turn into domestic politics also in China. And Germany, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other podcast that we might need to have. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but um, this was really wonderful. Um, I really, really enjoyed this discussion. Really important, I think, especially for folks on the U.S. side of the Atlantic to take note of a lot of what you all have said. So thank you so much, Yanka and Andrew, for joining us. And we'll have to catch up uh, and, and see how much progress. I mean, it's, it's such an important point, Andrew, about like the pace of change and whether or not we'll the strategy will be met with the same urgency and implementation. So we'll have to check in um, and see, see how we're doing. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. That was just excellent. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.